Welcome to the Gentle Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Donegan. I'm a midwife, mom, and founder of Gentle Birth. Join me each week to hear inspiring, uplifting birth stories, learn helpful tips, and get advice from parents and professionals supporting you on your journey to parenthood. Your positive birth begins here. In this week's episode, we meet Dr. Rixa Fries, an expert on the research around vaginal breech birth. Trigger warning for discussions of infant death during labour. Rixa, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about a topic that may impact some of our listeners as it's estimated that around 4 to 5% of babies will be breech at full term. I'm a huge fan of your blog and have been for many years. And as a breech baby myself, this topic has a very special place in my heart. So welcome to the Gentle Bird podcast, Rixa. Thank you very much. So I'd love to start with a little bit about where your interest in breech birth came from. Yeah, I was trying to track down when I first became interested in breech. And I want to say it's when I read Jennifer Block's book, Pushed, which I believe she published in 2008, uh, thereabouts. And I remember reading a passage from her book soon after it was published, where she was describing the first international breach conference that took place in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I was just fascinated. She described this international confluence of midwives and doctors coming together for the first time and talking about upright breach birth specifically. And, and I thought, okay, this is really interesting. I want to go to the next breach conference whenever it happens. So it turned out that there was another one in 2009. And I knew it was coming up and I thought at the time I was still a, I think I was still a student or I was newly graduated with my PhD. I didn't have any job at that point. And I thought, okay, I need to find a way to go to this conference, but I don't have the money to pay for the admission fee. Can I perhaps do some research so that I can then be a presenter and at least have the fee waived? Right. <laughs> my, my, my friends laugh at me because I'm like, well, it's just a simple matter. I'll do a research project yeah. and present. <laughs> So I actually did this with a collaborator and we, we did some qualitative studies, um, surveys, internet-based surveys, and we got 900 responses from women who were either had a breech pregnancy at some point and the baby turned before birth or the baby was breech and it was born breech. And of those 600 and something were fully complete. The surveys were fully completed so we could analyze their data. And so we presented our, our findings at the 2009 Ottawa Breach Conference and I just loved it. This is when they first presented preliminary results from the upright breach researchers in Frankfurt, Dr. Leuven and Dr. Reiter. We heard from Marek Glazerman, who did a critique of the term breach trial. So it was this wonderful gathering, again, of midwives and doctors and really this fantastic collaboration of people in the home birth world and people in the hospital world. And there was this excitement to learn from each other. I see in breach conferences to this day that I don't think we find very much elsewhere. So that was that was interesting. I went to the third breach conference that happened in Washington, D.C. in 2012 or 2013. I can't remember exactly which of those two years. I just remember I was pregnant with my last baby. Lovely. Uh, so it would have been fall 2012. Yeah. Again, I presented this was on more on consumer advocacy and connecting the dots between, you know, breach, VBAC, home birth advocacy. So it was it was still an interest of mine, but I wouldn't say it was my predominant research focus at the time up until about two years ago. I had some time in France when we were there on unpaid leave and I had five or six months where all my kids were in school for the first time. I had time during every day and I thought, oh, I'm just going to go through PubMed mm -hmm. and find everything that's been written about breach and read through it and maybe organize and categorize it as I go because I thought I really need to know the literature if I want to 
become more involved in the breach world because sure. I did. I really wanted to to start doing more research and work with breach because I just found it so fascinating. So 4,000 articles later, wow. <laughs> I had read through everything I could get my hands on. I read through the abstract and the full text whenever possible. Probably drove my interlibrary loan person crazy because I was ordering articles left and right and made my own system of organization and categorization for all of the articles I came across so I could find them again easily. And I found that was a big problem. When you do keyword searches on things like PubMed or other medical library databases, you won't necessarily find everything you're looking for. Yeah, I think um, that's one of the reasons why your blog is so popular, because you've kind of put everything together in easy to access format. Because yeah, mm -hmm. when you go looking for a breach, it's very difficult to get really good, robust information. Yeah, and there's so much of it that you can't easily sift through it in a matter of days or even weeks. This took me probably four or five months of full-time work just to go through all 4,000 articles and wow. organize them into a category and read through the abstract at a minimum. So, And not even the full text. The full text took me quite a little bit longer when I was going through some of the subcategories and trying to look at them more in depth. And this made me realize how much we need not just researchers who are doing their own little specialized research, but research, but people who can look through this massive amount of a material and make it accessible and easily searchable and comprehensive so you're not missing something. There's a lot of people who could benefit from having this access to this information at their fingertips who don't have the three or four months or six or seven months to do a thorough search of the literature, sure. review of the literature. So this is an ongoing project of mine. I'm hoping to actually do something with it in the future if I can find a research collaborator and have have somebody else look at it as well as just me so it has a, a function of having peer review. So we have at least one other person agreeing on all the categories for each article. I would love to make this something that's publicly accessible, you know, via some kind of a website database thing where maybe for a, a small access fee, you say, I want to have access to, say, every single stu single center study on breach birth since the year 1980 to the present. And you can just do a few clicks, request your information, and then out would pop a list of all of the, the research articles coming from single centers, you know, one hospital at a time, for example. That would be amazing. Uh, yeah. And I have access to that now through my own categories I've created. But I want to make this something that other people can access with a degree of confidence that that it's been done well and it's been done thoroughly. And that's why I want to bring another researcher onto the team so that it's not just me who's categorized, but at least two people have looked at every article and agreed where they should be labeled and categorized. So just this is a call for uh, someone who needs a master's to doctoral level project to work on. Right. I would love to be their supervisor and we could make this a thing. Uh, I also need some technological people who can do the computer programming and coding and all that stuff to make this something that's accessible um, to the public. So that's one of my many breach projects I have that I would love to develop further. Great. Hopefully some of our listeners are, are the right people for the job. I hope so. <laughs> so since then, I've been more involved in breach because once I started doing this categorization project and going through PubMed, I had all this information that I wanted to do something with. And I started putting together infographics to represent some of the findings I had. I started working on some chapter drafts for research articles that we hope to make eventually into a book on physiological breach birth. This would be with Sean Walker and Dr. Ankar Heiter. So this is something that we have ongoing, but slow, <laughs> slow, but hopefully still happening. I started putting together some breach workshops that I've been teaching in co conjunction with local breach experts, as I'm more the academic person and not so much the hands-on expert with breach birth. So it's evolved into a lot of fruitful projects that I've either started doing or have in the back burner pending funding and other people joining my team because there's a lot of things I need to add that I don't have expertise in. 
when we look at so for let's say you know first time parents my experience working with with parents in kind of the childbirth education piece of it is that mm-hmm. if they find, hear about breach all they hear about is breach equals cesarean so mm-hmm. can you talk to me a little bit about what what are the what are the barriers that our parents are facing today if their baby is presenting breach the largest barrier is that almost every provider is going to have view of breach as being extremely dangerous to do vaginally and that the only reasonable and safe choice would be a cesarean section. In addition, most providers now do not have experience even having witnessed vaginal breech births or being trained in them. Now this varies, you know, there's some countries that have continued the tradition of doing vaginal breech birth, a lot of Nordic and Scandinavian countries and France and Belgium. But other than that, most women will be told that cesarean section is the only option hands down, end of story, with a high degree of confidence and certainty that that is the absolutely the only reasonable option and that it would be utter madness to do a vaginal breech birth. So from the out, from the start, it's not just the parents who face obstacles in trying to find good information, but their healthcare providers for the most part are operating off of information that's almost 20 years old now. Most of them don't know outcomes of term breach besides the 2000 term breach trial. That's mostly where the information ends as far as what people are learning for the outcomes of breach birth. And that's why I've been working on this series of articles and presentations about evidence on term breach since the term breach trial, because there's a lot of evidence that has come out since. And the term breach trial has proven to be an outlier. And every other piece of evidence coming out does not support the conclusions of the term breach trial. Rita, would you just talk a little bit about what um, what impact that one study has had on how babies are born around the world? Yes. So my impression before I started researching this in depth was that the term breach trial made a rapid and dramatic change in the cesarean section rate for breach. And that is true. But what I didn't realize is that the cesarean rate for breach, the trend had already been firmly cemented long before the term breach trial. The term breach trial was just simply the the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, for vaginal breach birth around the world. So for example, in US and Canada, the cesarean section rate for breach before the TBT was already in the 90%, 90-something percentiles, often 60, 70, 80, 90% in many countries before. And what that did is it the term breach trial simply closed that gap and made a lot of them close to upper 90%, if not close to 100% in many countries. So it had a rapid and a very remarkable effect around the world. But at least in Western industrialized countries, cesarean section was already becoming the answer to breach by time we hit, especially the 1980s, the whole decade of the 80s. So it was dramatic, but I actually was struck by how strongly cesarean section was already cemented even before the TBT was published in the year 2000. So what the TBT did though was around the world, even in places that had a fairly low cesarean section rate for breach, it dramatically changed that as well. So that within a matter of years, hospitals that maybe would have a 20 or 30% cesarean section rate would have now an 80 or 90% cesarean section rate for breach because, you know, that was the gold standard of evidence. It was a randomized controlled trial. It was, in theory, the final answer to the question of term breach. It was both significant, but in some ways less significant than I had realized, given how strongly cesarean section had already been cemented as the answer to breach in the industrialized world. That's interesting, because I, I personally, I always thought that it was okay, that the TBT, that was it, like once that one paper came out, that breach was like an off the table. But as you're saying, it was it was actually just the final nail in the coffin. It was the last piece to uh, to really 
put Reach to bed, I guess, once and, and mm-hmm. for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what was it about that trial? Because I, I remember reading some of it myself and or some of the reviews and that it was not, there were their twins in the trial and, and it wasn't a, really a, a really well-conducted trial. There were multiple problems and critiques with the TBT, both in recruitment, in the randomization process, in care during labor. And I can give you a quick overview of some of the critiques. There's a number of authors who have looked at this, but yes, it's true there were some accidental twins included, and this was supposed to be singletons. There were even cephalic babies included, and they were not supposed to have any head-down babies. So there were problems in even recruiting, um, in adhering to the recruitment protocols. There were problems with randomization. Almost half of all women were randomized during active labor. Half of all the cesarean sections, and I think around 43% overall were, were in active labor when they were even introduced to the study itself. So it doesn't really represent a study in which women had time to think about enrollment and to take their time. A lot of these women were ready to have their babies when they were even introduced and asked to agree to take part in the study. So it just complicates things. There were problems with labor management. More than 30% of the women had no access to ultrasound, so they were not able to confirm head flexion, among other things. And that was one of the protocol things, as they were supposed to have a, a neutral or flexed head and not you know, not a deflexed head. Sure. A lot of women didn't have, uh, a significant number did not have access to a, a skilled birth attendant. So there might have been just a junior resident rather than an experienced obstetrician present. There were problems with other labor protocols. There was no pelvimetry, which was a problem for people who come from countries like France and Belgium, where pelvimetry is considered very essential. So there's, there were a lot of problems. And Merrick Glazerman did an analysis in 2005 or 2006, looking at every single case of perinatal death. And he found that almost all of the cases of perinatal death, 16 total, three in the vaginal or three in the cesarean arm and 13 in the breech arm, were not attributable to the mode of delivery. Some of these were stillbirths that had happened before the time of randomization. So the babies were already dead even before they were randomized, which was not supposed to be included. Some were twins, some were head down babies, some were IUGR or had some malformations. So most of these were not actually attributable to the mode of delivery. And when they when they removed the ones that were not attributable to the mode of delivery, they found that there was no difference in outcomes in either arm. But again, by the time the TBT was published, these changes that cemented the cesarean section, some of them happened nearly overnight. In Holland, for example, which had one of the highest rates of vaginal breech birth before the TBT, about 75% of women planned and about 50% of women had a vaginal breech birth before the TBT. In the Netherlands, within a two-month period, that rate went from 50% to 80%. So drastic, rapid change because of the TBT. So despite numerous critiques that have been published of the TBT and people arguing that we cannot really take the results at face value and that we need to temper these results with all of the other evidence coming out. And even despite the two-year follow-up of these babies, almost half of all the babies were followed at two years of age or older for long-term outcomes. And the two-year follow-up found no significant difference in outcomes at two years. So even though there is a significant difference in outcomes at in the short term, by the time these babies were two years old, the outcomes had erased themselves. Despite this publication that came out in 2004 showing no long-term difference, that didn't reverse the trend at all. It made almost no difference, which I think goes to show the point that by and large, physicians wanted the TBT to show cesarean section as the the answer. Yeah. And even though it wasn't shown to be the answer by the time the two-year follow-up came, by the time all these critiques came out, it didn't matter. It already reinforced what they wanted to hear, which was that cesarean section is the answer. And once they heard that answer, they were no longer interested in in new information. They had found the solution and they were going to go for cesarean section because it has so many advantages from the hospital's point of view and the physician's point of view. 
I'm sure this is great information now for parents and birth professionals that might not have the history of TBT. And But it is so interesting. Once that was published, it was overnight it just seemed to be you know breach is just no longer an option and, mm-hmm. and i think it's it's that idea of when is i can't what, what the saying is you know when, when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail or mm-hmm. you know that it's just now we have the solution and it, it's almost like cesarean is now the solution to vertex vaginal <laughs> birth at the moment the way the rates continue to increase but i'd mm-hmm. love to hear about your most recent research project and and again how that compared with that interesting study of the the tbt yeah so one of the things that i found is i looked through you know more recent uh studies both single center so studies from single hospitals multi-center studies so where hospitals pool their data and then also registry and birth certificate studies so this is you know nationwide level data And what we're finding is that the outcomes of term breach are either identical to planned cesarean section in countries like France and Belgium, which did the the large pre-MOTA study in the year 2006, and that had a cohort four times bigger than the TBT. That found no difference in outcomes between the two groups. Or we're finding that cesarean section has a very slight advantage to the newborn in the short term, but that advantage is much, much smaller than in the term breach trial. So where you had a, a rate of... 3 per 1,000 versus 13 per 1,000 in the term breach trial between this planned cesarean section and planned vaginal breach birth, which seems like a large difference. We're looking now at maybe um, a difference of 1 per 1,000 versus 3 per 1,000 between the two groups or even less than that. So I know it's hard to visualize these numbers when I'm talking. What I would suggest is um, for parents who are interested in seeing an infographic of these various outcomes – in an easy-to-understand format, I would suggest going to my website, um, breachwithoutborders.org, which is the website for my nonprofit that I recently founded. And if they go to the icon that's called Statistics, then they will have a series of infographics that represent some of the information I found. And the very first one has a this lovely bubble chart with these red and green bubbles. And it shows the TBT outcomes compared with a series of other large studies with huge, huge sample sizes. Some of these are multi-center studies, some are meta-analyses, so pooling data from multiple studies, and some are national registry data. And you'll see that the data all agrees with each other as far as being much less significantly different between planned cesarean section and planned vaginal breach birth, with the exception of the TBT, which clearly is shown to be an outlier in these outcomes. That's a really good place to go if you want to visualize the data and get a feeling for what it is actually happening on the ground versus what happened in this one small randomized controlled trial. Fantastic. Um, and I will put all of these details in uh, in the podcast notes as well. I had the pleasure of meeting Frank Leuven in uh, Brazil there last year, and he presented to, I think it was about 2,000 healthcare professionals in the room, mm-hmm. and he showed some amazing videos of breach, and, and he just kept talking about, you know, breach is normal, breach is normal, and midwives should be doing breach, and when uh, when I spoke to some, some of my, my midwifery colleagues, and they were like horrified because get their their level of experience with breach and and these are midwives that what would be hospital based were just mm-hmm. it was a state of panic that no 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 we couldn't we could never do breach and and again because of they haven't seen breach they're mm-hmm. and they're very nervous about it and so yet we see like here in the US that the recommendation is that it's breach is okay in skilled hands but absolutely contraindicated for home birth and I know that was based on the the mana stats but what what are your thoughts on breach for home birth? Yes, and thanks for asking because this is something we just published a paper on with me and Dr. Stuart Fishbein. 
So what we find is that we have very limited evidence for outcomes of breach at home. And the, the two large data sets that we have, one is from the Manistats, and that was analyzed by both Cheney et al. in 2014, I believe, and then Bob Bjerg in 2017. And then we also have CDC birth certificate data that was analyzed by Grunebaum in, I think, 2016 or 17. I'm sorry, I don't have all the dates memorized off the top of my head, but each of them had a 500-something breach births in their data sets. And they did find a significantly higher perinatal mortality rate for the the home breach births. But the problem is with these two data sets, all we have are the aggregate numbers without knowing any information about whether the breach was even known before labor. So was it diagnosed or undiagnosed? We don't know anything about the level of the provider's training and education. And it's entirely possible we have a range of, of home birth providers who are anywhere from extremely skilled in breach birth to having had no experience in breach birth. But we don't know this. Um, we don't know if they had had an ultrasound to rule out abnormal um, fetal abnormalities, lethal abnormalities, or even things like head flexion to see if they had a deflexed head, which is typically looked at. That's a, a very common selection criteria if the head is deflexed or not. So without knowing any of this information, all we have are the aggregate numbers. And so the paper that I just published with Dr. Fishbein looks at his breach outcomes. So it's a series of 60 breach and 109 cephalic babies under his care in a six-year period. He's an obstetrician who does home births in the Los Angeles area. He used to do hospital births, but his hospital then decided to ban breaches, VBACs, and probably vaginal twins. I don't remember on the twin aspect. And he decided that he could not ethically force women into having cesarean sections for situations that he could easily do a vaginal birth. And so instead of instead of forcing women to give up their autonomy, he decided as a provider that he was going to move into home birth and support these women in a home setting since they, he was not uh, allowed to support them in a hospital setting anymore. And so we had a small sample set. So that's the big disadvantage of our studies. We don't have a lot of breaches. We had 50 by time labor began, but we were able to analyze them at least in depth and take a look at what happens with breach when you have a skilled provider and when you have clear selection protocols, when you know the breach is breached beforehand. Yeah. And, you know, we found a really high rate of vaginal birth and very good maternal outcomes. And, you know, we can't really comment on neonatal outcomes. We can give some statistical comments on APGAR scores. We did have a low, uh, higher rate of low APGAR scores at one minute, but that difference by five minutes was not statistically significant. Right. Again, we're, we're dealing with very small sample sizes, but big enough to make some, to do some statistical calculations on. But for the, the rates of more uncommon adverse neonatal outcomes, we just don't have a big enough size to to make any kind of calculation. And were these uh, first-time moms? We had a combination of multips and primips in both the head down and in the breech group. I think 41 of the 50 breech mums were first-time mums, so a lot of primips. Among the multips in both groups, 100% gave birth vaginally. And the, even with the primate breaches, though, I think it was 76% gave birth vaginally with the primate breaches, which is a very, very high rate of successful vaginal birth. I was about to say, could you repeat that again? Because that number itself, when we look at vertex, like head down baby and trying mm -hmm. to have a vaginal birth in a U.S. hospital, those numbers are incredibly impressive. I believe the primate vaginal birth rate was 76%. It's either 74, 76. Don't quote me on that, but sure. my paper is for free download. Um, and 100% of the multips of both breech and cephalic gave birth vaginally. We have a better vaginal birth rate with our primate breaches than we do for most mums, low-risk first-time mums with a head-down baby who go into an American hospital to give birth. You know, That's incredible. 
a lot of women can give birth vaginally to their breech babies, including primates. And I think it's a shame that so many are not even given the opportunity to have a to try. And that's what I'm trying to reverse, retraining people to safely attend vaginal breech births in educating providers that this is not as dangerous as we thought. And that if you take the long-term risks to the mother and to the baby into account, that mm. all of a sudden what we thought was a clear-cut answer is no longer clear-cut. And it's I, th- I think we can safely argue that any short-term gains that we make by doing universal cesarean section on all breech baby are completely lost by time we take into account what happens to the mother and especially by time she has her next baby. They're lost entirely. All the gains are lost. And in fact, the balance becomes more tipped towards vaginal birth, if anything, by time the mother has another baby. So this is a difficult, complex risk calculus. This is what I call it in my presentations, where if we're really going to take into account the long-term risks and the short-term risks to this mother, to this baby, to the next baby, what happens is the answer all of a sudden becomes very, very complicated. And there is no clear answer. And I think in terms of risk, there, there is no clear definitive answer anymore. But most people don't know this. And that's the problem because then they're getting risk counseling that is out of date and that is not accurate. And so women are making choices, quote unquote, which often means they don't have a choice at all. Yeah. They're, they're being forced into cesarean section with no other choice without even knowing the long-term risks that they're taking upon themselves by having the cesarean section that was most likely not necessary for many, many women. And I think that's so troubling in terms of human rights and autonomy. What we're doing is basically denying an entire class of women the right to make choices about their own body, which is a foundational legal and ethical right that we have in almost every legal system and every government. We're taking those rights away completely with with absolutely no regard for these yeah, women. I mean, parents cannot make an informed decision if we're not giving them all of the information. Yes. You have to have information and you actually have to have a choice too. Often they're getting neither of those two. Yeah. Or if they're getting information, they're getting quite skewed information depending on, uh, on the mm-hmm. care provider. When it comes to, to breech vaginal birth, do you know, have any information on whether moms should have an epidural or not? Now, I, again, my interest in, in Frank Leuven's work was all about, you know, physiological breach. And mm-hmm. to me, introducing the epidural is, is that whole, well, just in case we need to have a cesarean and it's, it's kind of planting the seeds of doubt already. And I think yes. it just makes sense that women can follow what their body needs and, and move into positions which they'll generally instinctively do if, if we get out of their way. But what I'm hearing as well is that moms who have done a ton of research have been able to find a care provider who is kind of letting, willing to let them try a breach. Mm-hmm. That one barrier for them is that they're being epidural kind of has to be part of that, that package. Yes. Based on what the evidence says, I would say that if anything, the evidence is skewed towards not having the epidural in a couple of reasons. There's, there is actually some studies where they look at specific risk factors for um, uh, a vaginal breech birth and kind of what leads to a failure of vaginal breech birth. And one of them, one risk factor for a poor outcome was associated with epidural use. Um, I could look up that study for people who are interested if they want to get in touch with me. One thing we find too is um, in Germany, they have these wonderful epidurals where women are truly walking and kneeling and standing on their own power, even while having an epidural. So they have a different process, yeah. a different mixture of drugs and doses. And they truly have what we would call a walking epidural. And so in even in Frankfurt, where a good number of women still had epidurals, they were all able to remain upright and mobile and largely um, in, independent, you know, be able to stand or kneel independently. What happens is 
with the epidural in a U.S. context is the woman is confined to bed and she is made to stay on her back for the pussing stage. It's extremely rare for providers to help women get into an upright position with an epidural. I've, I know providers who do it, but they're very, very rare. Yeah. So part of the difficulty with the epidural comes because it forces the woman to have all of the weight of her body put onto her sacrum and it forces her pelvis into, uh, into an immobile fixed position rather than being upright and mobile. We know from um, pelvic MRI studies that an upright kneeling uh, upright kneeling and leaning forward position, so kind of an upright squat of some sort, opens the pelvic, the mid pelvis and the the pelvic outlet one to two centimeters, depending on which thing you're measuring, compared to being on the back. What this means is that by insisting the woman is on her back for giving birth to a breech baby, and this is usually, you know, if you have an epidural, she almost has to be on her back in our system. This means is that you're insisting on a smaller immobile pelvis. And you're actually making it worse off for the baby, making it more difficult for the baby to emerge. What I try to remind people is that getting a woman upright, leaning forward and getting her weight off of her sacrum, basically, and getting her pelvis mobile again, opens the mid-pelvis and the pelvic outlet as much as or greater than performing a symphysiotomy. And if providers knew that, they might be shocked to know how much of a difference in pelvic capacity we have, we gain when we get the pelvis upright and mobile. And so if a woman is being pressured to have an epidural, I think she needs to present this evidence to her care providers and say, if you're asking me to have an epidural that I do not want, you are actually asking me to put my baby in greater risk of being trapped in the pelvis because my pelvic dimensions are going to be so much smaller than if I'm upright on my hands and knees with a pelvis that's able to flex and move and open. And there's very good evidence for this. So I think a woman who does not want an epidural should have all the right to refuse one and to be able to be upright and hands and knees as she wishes. Now, this doesn't mean that having an epidural is extremely dangerous. You know, in the Primota study, almost all women had an epidural. This is the large multicenter study coming from France and Belgium, and they had extremely good outcomes. I'm just saying that a breach should never be a reason to force a woman into back birthing and into epidural birthing as a safety precaution. That is actually nonsense. Yeah. And I think if anything, we should be wanting the best safety precaution um, to have the birth go as easily as possible would be to encourage all women to be in upright positions and to encourage anesthesiologists to develop their anesthetic technique so that women truly have a walking epidural where they can assume a hands and knees or a standing or a kneeling position, even with the epidural. So difficult, even with a with a head down baby, if you have an epidural to change positions. It's I've been in situations where you know working as a birth doula, where mom still has some good sensation in the legs, and we can mm-hmm. shift positions a little bit, but it's usually to the horror of of the staff. We know that, yes, the, the pelvic dimensions, we're, we're making the exit bigger for the baby. For those moms to be in that upright position alone changes their mindset as well, that they're not in that stranded beetle position and feeling mm-hmm. more vulnerable. Would, would you say that based on your work and the work that's going on in these little pockets around the world, are you seeing a growing interest in breech birth? I would say yes, especially in upright breech birth. I, in hospitals that are taking breach up again, they're largely doing it because they've been learning about upright breach birth and they get so excited about it because it's exciting and it's interesting and it's empowering, I think, for both the provider and for the woman because you realize that breach is less scary than you thought it was because when a, when a baby is born 
with the mother in an upright leaning forward position, the provider actually has an amazing view of what the baby is doing. And you can read the baby almost like a book. And the baby will go through a series of very predictable movements as it navigates through the maternal pelvis and a very predictable series of steps. And if you watch the baby carefully, the baby will tell you if it's going to be trapped or not, and if it's going to, if it's coming into trouble or not. And you don't see a lot of these signs very easily if the woman is on her back because you're not seeing the baby's, the front of the baby's body. And there's a lot more things going on with the front of the baby that you can read that you see easily when the woman is on her hands and knees. And we know from the research coming out of Frankfurt that an upright breech birth needs a lot fewer maneuvers than an on the back breech birth. I'm excited to see that at least the resurgence in, in breech birth, although it's small, it's very invigorating and it's largely being done with women on in an upright position. And I think that's very promising. Mm-hmm. Is Canada an area where you think they're more progressive, they're more open to, to facilitating upright breech? Canada is, it's a mixed bag because they have a very supportive obstetric guideline on breach that was done in 2009 by uh, Andrew Kotaska and some co-authors. So in theory, they have a tremendous amount of support behind offering vaginal breach birth and retraining physicians. But on the ground, that has been very slow. It's been very slow and laborious to make headway. And all the gains have been fought for tooth and nail. So Canada is doing well and is certainly much more progressive than than the United States, especially in terms of their obstetrical organization's advocacy for retraining and for truly offering choice. However, it's so hard to change the tide on the ground. So, you know, even while the SOGC is very supportive of retraining and makes some very strong statements, you have to still retrain individual physicians one by one and convince them that they want to do this. For the battles to get midwives to be able to attend breach, it's in with Canadian midwives' scope of practice to attend a breach birth. However, nearly every hospital refuses to allow a midwife to attend a breech birth, even though it's within her professional scope of practice. And so she's mandated to transfer care to an obstetrician. And often there might not be a supportive obstetrician in the hospital. So you might have a, a midwife who's trained and willing to do a breech birth in Canada and able to, according to her professional guidelines, but there's no hospital that's willing to allow her to do that. And so that's what Betty Ann Davis is in the middle of trying to do right now is to persuade the Ottawa hospital to allow midwives to attend breech births with their own clients rather than having to transfer care to an obstetrician. And we're crossing our fingers that this was successful. I believe they had their meeting yesterday with the hospital and a board of uh, consumer advocates. Betty Ann Davis has been able to get hospital privileges at Montfort Hospital, I believe, but she's the only one and that's the only hospital so far. So it's an uphill battle for these midwives to get privileges to do something that they're already allowed to do within their own professional guidelines. Did, did, did I see an article recently about Betty Ann Davis that she has you know, 0% cesarean rate for breach? I, I think the article didn't mean that she had a 0% cesarean rate. It's just how many vaginal breach births she has attended over the okay. course of her career. I, I, I'm assuming some of them probably have gone to cesarean section. Yeah. So yeah, but there was that article that just made the rounds recently profiling her work in breach birth. It was a lovely article. What about other countries for like in the UK and, and Sean Walker's work? Are, are you collaborating with Sean to to bring these workshops to more hospitals, to more midwives? I'm working with Sean on a few projects, but this is more um, articles and chapters. And so I would have to ask Sean a little bit more about how prevalent her own workshops are. I know she teaches a lot of breach study days and breach study workshops all around the UK and actually internationally. So I think there's quite a bit of interest going on in the UK. There's definitely a lot more choice and options there than you would find in the United States. There's a lot more people who are able to offer it in a hospital setting. And certainly midwives in the UK can do breach in hospital settings if they have training far more than they can in the US or Canada. So Sean Walker would be a good one to ask for that because she would know a lot more about 
the tone and the the tempo of what's happening in the UK specifically. You mentioned briefly about one of the, one of the aspects of breech birth and the pelvic dimensions. I guess one of the big fears when I talk to moms is that they've read somewhere that because the head is coming last, that the head can just get trapped. What happens in that in that situation? Or is this something that they mm-hmm. can see is happening, especially if mom is upright? And are there maneuvers that, that the midwife can do to, to facilitate that birth safely? Yeah. Well, let's talk about head entrapment. So we, there's this thing we call head entrapment, but there's actually several different kinds. So one is cervical head entrapment, where the cervix, the head becomes trapped in a partially dilated cervix. And this is a huge fear but that actually only happens with very premature babies. I haven't found any evidence that this happens in full-term babies. This is looking through everything um, from 1980 to the present. So really, that's not so much an issue for a full-term baby, this idea of the cervix itself trapping the head. Yeah. When we talk about head entrapment, it's usually more the after-coming head. The rest of the body has been born, and part of the head is stuck in the mother's pelvis. And so you can have head entrapment in two different ways. You can ha- have head entrapment um, after the arms are born, so it's just the head that remains. Or you can have what's often called head entrapment, but it's really more of an arm entrapment where you have one or two arms up behind the head. So it's more that the arm is stuck and then preventing the head from being born. And so with both of these, with true head entrapment and with arm or shoulder entrapment, we have maneuvers that we can do to free the baby. Um, some of these maneuvers are positional changes in the mother to shift the, the pelvis and to give the baby more space in an area of the pelvis. And again, if the mother is upright, and doesn't have an epidural or has a good uh, walking epidural, she can change positions easily. Some of them involve specific maneuvers to help the baby get out. Often these are rotational maneuvers where you kind of corkscrew the baby out. Um, Sometimes they're maneuvers simply you press on the baby's um, shoulder clavicle area backwards towards the pubic bone and it helps flex the head. So depending on what's happening and which part is stuck, there are specific maneuvers we've developed for both back birth and upright birth to help free a trapped head. Sometimes forceps can be used. In certain countries, they use forceps to free a trapped head. In certain countries, they never use forceps. So forceps are not necessarily mandatory. It depends which country and which obstetric tradition you've been trained in. But yes, that's a that's one of those rare emergencies. And that's where you want to have a skilled provider because that's exactly the reason we want um, an experienced provider there is to be able to do the maneuvers to help a baby out if the baby truly needs help. It's similar to maybe shoulder dystocia in that in a head down baby, in rare occasions, the shoulders can become stuck after the head is born. And you have to do maneuvers and positional changes to help that shoulder become dislodged from behind the pubic bone. And we would like somebody who knows what they're doing and who can do it quickly and efficiently. And the same goes for with a breech baby with a trapped head. You'd want somebody who knows the maneuvers and who knows what to do. And, and a mother who can work quickly with her birth attendant to, to move and change positions and do everything she can as well to help the baby's head become unentrapped. Yeah, it's very different when, because uh, my own midwifery training and, and you're practicing on this, on this dummy and it's, mm-hmm. but it's very different when you're actually in a live situation, either at home or in hospital that you need to be, I think confidence is a big part of it. You know, every, everywhere that I look when I'm reading about breach, the fact that this is an art as well mm-hmm. as a science and that it is literally dying out because care providers who are really experienced in breach, but just don't, they can't either, they can't practice or there's there's not enough interest in like the younger residents coming up and midwives and wanting to to really learn these skills to take it forward. Yeah, the nice thing with upright breech birth is that the baby will tell you if it's going to have an arm trapped or not before the arm is trapped, because the baby will will fail to do a rotation from facing sideways to facing right towards the mother's bum. And if that doesn't if that happens, if you notice the baby doesn't do this last rotation, you know that there's some problem with the arms 
And then you can also look at the baby's chest. And if there's this, what we call the chest crease or the cleavage, where there's a little crinkle in the baby's chest, that, that means the arms are not behind the head, that they're not trapped. So there's signs that you can read in the breech baby, especially the upright breech baby, that let you know if you're going to even have to deal with arm entrapment or not. And it's such a beautiful thing because it gives you the confidence. You know what's coming even yeah. before it arises and you can prepare mentally okay, the baby is not rotating as it should, that most likely means I'm going to have to help free one or both arms. And I love that with upright breaches, you can read what's happening and what is even coming because the baby's body gives you such a beautiful textbook to read as it's emerging. And is there a timeline on how quickly that rotation should be happening? Well, generally the baby's, so the baby's bum will rump facing transverse or sideways. And then by time, sometime between when the umbilicus or the chest is born, sometime in that range, you'll see the rotation happen. And so if the baby is born past the umbilicus and up, you know, part of the chest coming out and is still facing sideways, then you know something's up. Something's going on. And now it's you can't give a strict, you know, in 30 seconds do this and sure. 30 seconds do this. It's a little more it's more like, you know, you'll have a strong contraction and more of the baby will emerge. And if the rotation doesn't happen as the baby is coming down and down, then you know something is something is off. You know, you always will see this rotation in a normal uh, physiological birth. That's part of the normal mechanism for the baby to emerge correctly. I can't give you a strict amount of seconds, but definitely as the baby is coming down, as you know, the bum comes, the umbilical cord, the umbilicus is born, and then part of the chest is born, you should definitely see that rotation happening during that time period. And generally that happens within about, you know, one contraction from the, the bum being fully crowned and rumping to maybe you know, quite a bit of the body being born. So similar to a, to a you know, straightforward normal vaginal birth as long as they're seeing progress mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a factor of progress and you know the baby's condition so the baby's color the baby's tone yeah. the baby's heart tones so certainly a baby that's vigorously moving and kicking you can give that baby more time without being worried than if the baby that's already limp even as it's starting to emerge limp and you know less colorful so you have to just evaluate what the baby is doing, its rotations, and the baby's condition. And if either the baby deviates from the normal mechanism or if something about the baby's color, tone, or heart rate tells you something is off, then you step in and you don't hesitate to help assist the process so that you you don't wait for the baby to become more and more compromised. Sure. So I say it's you need to trust the baby. Trust the baby will tell you what it needs. Yeah. And either the baby will tell you that it needs help because it's not following the normal mechanisms, or the baby will tell you it needs help because its color or tone or heart rate will be telling you that something is wrong. And you have to be hands-off if the baby is doing well, but you have to be hands-on if the baby isn't doing well, and, and trust either of those processes. So for a mom that's listening to this podcast today, what is the perfect candidate for an upright breech birth? You know, some providers say a motivated mother is the most important thing. There's debate on other things, you know, estimated fetal weight. Some people are more strict. Some people are more loose. Some of the common cri selection criteria are normal size baby. A lot of providers are more comfortable with a bigger baby than with a very small baby. They, they tend to find that smaller babies get themselves into more trouble. Generally, providers like to lo look for head flexion so they don't have a deflexed head, a head that's almost pointing upwards. You know, interestingly enough, in Frankfurt, they don't check for head flexion. That's not a selection criteria. Almost every other place does, but they don't for whatever reason. They also don't really have upper fetal weight limits in Frankfurt when they do upright breaches. Uh, generally, they look for things like uh, major congenital anomalies. You know, they want to rule out any really big things that might be a problem or just to be aware of beforehand. But a lot of it comes down to progress in labor and is the mother motivated and well-informed. A lot of providers have told me the breech baby and the labor itself will tell me if this baby is going to be born breech. 
I was talking to one physician who does a lot of breaches, and he said the breech baby will rescue itself. In other words, if the baby needs to be born by cesarean section, the baby will give you indications by the course of its labor. It's not working well. That maybe a very dysfunctional labor, a labor that's stopping and starting, but a labor that's progressing, that's you know getting stronger. You know the contractions are getting closer together. Things are going smoothly. That's a very good sign that the birth will happen well. Providers need to know the breach mechanisms inside and out by heart, so they have that pattern ingrained in their head of what they should be seeing and yeah. seeing that over and over. So by the time they see a deviation from the pattern, automatically they know something is different and they know to be ready to do something. Pattern recognition is so important for doing a breech birth well. That's where I think it's important to watch a lot of breech videos over and over again. That's the beauty of having technology now that we can watch a birth more than one time. We can watch these videos over and over until we have this pattern ingrained in us and it becomes second nature. And then it's so much easier to identify right away when there's a deviation from that pattern. Rick, so a question that I probably should have asked you right at the very beginning of our, uh, our call today. It's, is there any particular reason why some babies just end up in that breech position, specifically mm-hmm. healthy babies? Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of it's unknown. You know, we know, for example, that sometimes it's due to the uterine shape. And so a mother who has a certain uterine anomalies will tend to have breech babies. Sometimes it's, you know, there's issues perhaps with scar tissue or ligaments that are making the, the lower part of the uterus smaller and so the baby fits better breech. Sometimes it might be because of a shorter cord and the baby doesn't have enough room to really maneuver into head down position, you know, and sometimes we honestly just don't know. I mean, sometimes it's related to problems with the baby because there are more breech babies. Breech babies tend to have higher rates of abnormalities and sometimes the abnormality itself makes the baby stay breech. But most of the time, we just don't know. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And some of these babies will turn if you give them an external cephalic version and some of them will not turn no matter what you do. Some parents are more motivated to get that baby to turn in part because they might not have any other options if the baby's breech. And there's also some people who are very happy to let the baby stay breech and to let the baby choose its own position for being born. So there's different approaches. And it, I know it depends on how many options you have at your disposal in your local community. And then of course, You'll hear on a daily basis about moms doing somersaults in swimming mm-hmm. pools and putting bags of peas on the bump and <laughs> using flashlights. Do you have any information? What, what is the kind of state of the evidence of alternative methods that might be helpful to encourage a baby into that head down position? Yeah. So this is one of the things I haven't categorized yet. I put them all into one big group as I was going through all the breach data, but I haven't categorized it and studied it very well. So ECV and all of the alternative options to ECV remains to be categorized right. at this point. I know other Watch people have space. looked into it. I would say there's a limited amount of evidence for some of these alternative techniques. I would say that if it doesn't stress the mother out inordinately, certainly these things, you can give them a try and most of them probably have very little risk, if any going to a swimming pool, you know, doing handstands in the swimming pool, putting frozen peas at a certain, Mm -hmm. in a certain place, playing music to the baby to get it to turn. It depends if this is more stressful to the mother, it might not be healthy or productive versus if she feels like it's enjoyable to do something to try to encourage the baby. And maybe this will work, maybe not. A lot of these things are simply understudied. Some of these things are studied, like moxibustion has quite a few studies. And I think the evidence from what I remember is mixed. You'll have some studies that'll find some benefits and some studies that find no difference. But don't quote me on that because I haven't analyzed it in depth yet. I had just because of my own interest in hypnosis, the uh, the male study, what I like to do is combining hypnosis and moxa, which I've mm-hmm. found to be helpful. But again, I, I do think that if mom is motivated and it's not stressing her out, I've hear from moms who are coming from like a 28 week appointment 
stressed because they've been oh, told it's... their baby is breech and it's it's unnecessary stress for parents at that point in their pregnancy. Yeah, that's way too early to start worrying about it because a lot of babies are breech at that point. But yeah. I understand. I mean, I knew I had one baby who was breech for several weeks during pregnancy and it was a little bit too early to worry about it, but I still did because I... And even though I had a very supportive midwife, I had amazing options at my disposal, not in the hospital. I would have had to travel at least three hours away to find any breach provider in a hospital, but I had good options for my midwife, but it was still very stressful to me. And even though I knew I shouldn't worry, I was researching breach. Yeah. I still worried. It was still very stressful, even given a very good situation. So I, I totally sympathize with these women who are so stressed out of their mind, especially women who know there are no options for a vaginal birth anywhere in their area. It's such a difficult place to be in. And we see this almost every day on the Coalition for Breach Birth Facebook group. Woman after woman saying, I just found out my baby's breach. I'm 36, 37, 38 weeks. There's no one who will take me on. What do I do? And it's so frustrating to hear the story over and over and over. I have no choices. I have no options. Nobody will do this. I don't want a cesarean section. Yeah. And we just need to do better for these women. I mean, it's ridiculous that we can't offer 3 to 4% of all women at term a vaginal birth. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of women that we're, we're saying, I'm sorry, we're, we refuse to even have the skills to know how to do this. The only choice is surgical birth. And what I mm-hmm. say to moms is that vaginal breech birth may not be for you, but informed decision making and having all of the information and access to care providers who can provide that option for you is really important. And it's, it's mm-hmm. just so scarce. Yes. Rita, thank you so much for your generosity of time today and for all of the incredible work that you have done already and continue to do in this space. I look forward to following more of your blog and more of your research and hopefully some of the information today will uh, inspire and uplift parents that are faced with this conundrum at the moment and, uh, and some great information for birth professionals as well to share with parents that they're working with. Yes, thank you so much. I'd like to add, please visit Breach Without Borders. Please visit my blog, which is rixarixa.blogspot.com and visit my Breach page. Feel free to get in touch if you have questions. I'm always happy to send way too much information your way if you want information. Um, and, you know, share the information that you find with people who might find it useful. Also, I just want to give a little plug that I'm doing a breach workshop coming up in Asheville, North Carolina in early December. And hopefully in the future, we'll be offering more of these so providers and parents can come and learn more about breach. Wonderful. I will follow with interest. If you're out in the California area, I would love to come along. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 